if we're not careful, we can sing and preach about the work of Jesus that happened over 2,000 years ago, and yet live like those events have no real relevance for our lives today. I want you to understand this morning that what Jesus Christ did for us matters in the here and now. And I want us to see that from the Word of God. And I want you to turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far, all right? Revelation chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful, Lord, for this privilege of corporate worship. And we're so grateful for the realities that we are celebrating today. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truths of Scripture, and understand the relevance of those realities in the here and now. So Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to sweep across this room. I ask you to transform lives. I ask you to touch hearts. I ask you to save souls. I ask you to encourage saints. I ask you to help us as we lift up the mighty name of Jesus. So Lord, just have your way in this time together. Establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This passage is interesting because the Apostle John is writing a letter to seven churches to describe the vision that was given to him during his time on the Isle of Patmos. He was in exile for preaching the gospel And while he was in exile on this barren island, God gave him a vision, much of which concerns the end-time scenario. 
and he records this vision, and he's getting ready to send it to churches scattered throughout first century Asia Minor. And he's introducing himself there in verse 4. John, he, he uh, indicates who he's writing to, the seven churches of Asia. Then he begins to talk about the Lord. He mentions God the Father. Look what it says in verse 4. Grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, a reference to the first person of the Godhead, God the Father, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Scholars believe the phrase seven spirits refers to the Holy Spirit, and it calls the Holy Spirit here the seven spirits around the throne to speak of his omniscience and omnipresence. He is everywhere at one time, and so it uses that metaphor to speak of his nature. And then John mentions the second person of the Godhead from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And as he begins to describe Jesus and talk about Jesus, a praise song breaks out. He breaks into doxology, just talking about Jesus. Hey, quick question. When was the last time you were talking about the Lord and you got so excited, praise broke out? That's what happens here. He just breaks out in doxology. And I want us to look at this praise song and see what John says, because we're going to see in this song, this this acclamation of praise, we're going to see the relevance of the work of Christ today for you and for me and for all people. But he begins by just discussing or reminding his hearers of the work of Christ. First of all, he wants to remind them that Jesus died. Look what he says in verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The faithful witness. That word witness could be translated martyr. And you know what a martyr is. A martyr is one who suffers death for allegiance to a cause. And the Apostle John calls Jesus a faithful martyr, one who suffered death for his allegiance to the cause of the Father, to to send Jesus so he could seek and save that which was lost. And so in obedience to his Father, Jesus Christ laid down his life. He was a martyr. This phrase, faithful witness, is used throughout the book of Revelation to refer to those who suffered the penalty of death, resulting from a firm and faithful witness. And because of the firm and faithful witness of Jesus Christ, because he did not back down from the truth that he was the Redeemer and he was the only hope of humanity, because he endured to the end and went to the cross, he is a faithful witness, a faithful martyr. He suffered the penalty of death. So Jesus died, and we're reminded of that here in this phrase, but also we're reminded that Jesus rose again. Look in verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. That phrase, firstborn of the dead, speaks of the preeminence of Christ over all those who have been or who will be resurrected. We know from the Bible that Lazarus was raised from his tomb. We know that Jairus' daughter was raised from her tomb. And we know that in the last times that all of humanity will be raised, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting punishment. But here, Jesus is called the firstborn, the preeminent over all those that have been or will be resurrected. Speaks of his authority, his power, his preeminence. And so we're reminded here that Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead, which, by the way, is the gospel. We we use the phrase gospel all the time, the the good news. 
But Paul defines the gospel for us in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, here's the message of preeminence. Here's the good news. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. And because of what he did over 2,000 years ago, we have hope. And so I want you to see the relevance of the resurrection as this passage begins or continues to unfold. I want you to see four reasons that Jesus was raised from the dead. Four implications, if you will, of the resurrection, which again are relevant for you and relevant for me right now on April 20th, 2014. So so what are the four reasons that Jesus Christ was raised? First of all, Jesus was raised to reign. Jesus was raised to reign. Look what the Bible says in verse 5. He says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Isn't that interesting? He calls Jesus the ruler of the kings on earth. In other words, you take all the kings, and he's the king of those kings. You take all the rulers, and he's the ruler of those rulers. You take all the lords, and he's the lord of those lords. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now here's what's interesting. The early church father Irenaeus records that John received this revelation toward the end of the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. The Christians in the seven churches that he's writing to were experiencing persecution under this emperor who was a morally repugnant madman. Jim Hamilton writes about Domitian. Imagine living in a world ruled by a man who would leave his brother to die, seduce his own niece, kill people for making jokes about him, and then demand to be addressed as Dominus et Deus, which means Lord and God. He was a madman. He was morally reprehensible. And yet he demanded that all of the citizens of the Roman Empire call him Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And so the Christians heard that and said, no, we'll not call him Lord and God. Our Lord and God is Jesus Christ. And because they refused to bow their knee to Domitian, systematic persecution commenced. And under the reign of Domitian, the Christians went through severe persecution for their faith. And so it was important that as these seven churches, these Christians received this letter, it was important to be reminded that Jesus Christ was the ruler of all the kings, including Domitian. That Jesus Christ was higher than Domitian. They were right to not bow their knee to Domitian. They were only to bow their knee to the highest and the greatest, the one with ultimate authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hamilton goes on to write, However powerful Domitian or any other ruler might be, they all answer to Jesus. He will call them to account. Jesus is the king. Now John Piper writes about this phrase, ruler of kings on the earth, and he writes three implications of this phrase. First of all, he says, this phrase implies that Jesus controls who becomes king and who doesn't. You ever thought about that? Jesus is the one 
who has the final say as to who comes to power and who does not. He's in control of all of that. Have you ever felt like the world is spinning out of control? Raise your hand. And you feel like that, you know, things are just spiraling downward and you feel so weak and helpless and powerless. Let me, let me tell you this. Jesus Christ is not weak and helpless and powerless. Jesus Christ reigns on his throne, and because he's ruler of the kings of the earth, he determines who comes to power. He has a plan in it all, a a purpose in it all, and his purposes will be accomplished. Secondly, this phrase, ruler of kings on earth, implies that he, Jesus, regulates what the kings of the earth do. See, See, all through the ages, the kings, the rulers thought they had power. The kings and the rulers today think they have power. But they only have the power that Jesus allows them to have. He regulates what the kings of the earth do. And here's the third implication of the phrase, ruler of kings on the earth. He will triumph. Jesus Christ will triumph over every other king. The Bible records that when the dust settles on human history, every knee will bow before King Jesus and every tongue will confess the lordship of Jesus Christ alone. That that day is coming. And John reminds us here, Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth. Here's what it means. There's no one higher or greater than Jesus. And because that is true, his absolute authority demands our absolute allegiance. That's one of the implications of the resurrection. He rose to reign. Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, where he writes, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so if this is true, if there's none higher than Jesus, if his absolute authority calls for our absolute allegiance, how should we respond? Be surrendered. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Not church membership, you sign a card or you're a part of a particular denomination. To follow Christ means you have surrendered all to King Jesus. That's what it means. You're a follower of Christ. It means that he is Lord of your life. Years ago, my oldest son, he was about three, was riding in my truck with me and Claire. He was in his car seat, and he was doing something he shouldn't have done. By the way, I asked for his permission to share this story. But he was doing something that he shouldn't have done, and I told him to stop, and, and he didn't want to stop. And I reminded him he needed to stop because I'm the boss. That's what I told him. I said, I said Cameron, I'm the boss. You, you, you need to stop what you're, you're doing. And when I said, I'm the boss, he replied, I'm the boss. And I said, no, son, no. I'm the daddy. I'm the boss. To which he said, I'm the boss. And I said, Cameron, if you say that you're the boss one more time, I'm stopping the truck and we're going to deal with this. Don't say it again. We continued to drive down the road. I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw him mouth these words. I pulled the truck over and 
We dealt with it. But you know, that's how a lot of people treat Jesus. Yes, you're ruler of kings of the earth. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but I'm the boss of my life. I'll not surrender to you. I'll not submit to you. I'm the boss. John reminds us that he's the boss. Be surrendered. There's a second implication of the resurrection. Jesus was not only raised to reign, he was raised to redeem. Raised to redeem. The word redeem means to to purchase with the payment of a price, to to set free through the payment of a price. It was used uh, in, in the days of slavery to speak of paying for someone's Uh, freedom. You would pay the debt to their slave owner so they could be set free. They could be redeemed. And this word redemption came to be used as a metaphor for salvation. Because what is salvation if it is not freedom through the payment of a price? Jesus paid it all so we could be set free, right? And so this word redemption means salvation. And, And John discusses as he breaks out in praise the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And this is important because, listen, a dead man can't help anybody, right? But, but John's reminding us he's not dead. He's firstborn from the dead. He rose from the grave. He's alive, and because he's alive, he can rescue, he can redeem, he can save. That's what he's saying here. But he makes several interesting comments about the nature of redemption that I want you to see in this text. First of all, redemption is motivated by love. Oh, don't miss this. Redemption is motivated by love. Look what the Bible says in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us by his blood. To him who loves us. And so his His payment of the price for our sins to set us free, to save us, is motivated, compelled, driven by his love for you and his love for me. Make make no mistake about it, Jesus loves you. Now now some people think that in the first century, Jesus was a, a victim of circumstances beyond his control. That he didn't see the... The, the betrayal of Judas coming. And, and, and he had no power when he was arrested by the, the Jewish religious leaders and handed over to be flogged and crucified by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Many just assume, well, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, powerless to do anything about his plight. That idea could not be further from the biblical truth. The Bible indicates that while he was going through the betrayal and the arrest and the trials and the mocking and the beating and the crucifixion, he was in perfect control. Do you remember what happened when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter wanted to fight. They arrested Jesus. Peter pulled out a sword, cut off the servants of the high priest's ear. Jesus immediately touched his ear and healed this servant. And he said to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you understand that I could call 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 if you want to do the math. I could call 72,000 angels to come and and bring me uh, out of this mess. Don't you understand? I don't have to go through this. I'm, I'm choosing to go through this. He was in control. Think about the crucifixion. Over in John 
chapter 10, when Jesus is discussing his role as the good shepherd, he said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. Jesus Christ was not forced to go to the cross. He had power over Pilate. Jesus Christ chose to go to the cross. And the question becomes, why would he do that? Why would anyone choose the suffering and the ridicule and the shame? Because he loves you. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God for you. The cross declares over your life, you are loved by God. You think, he couldn't love me. I think about my past and and my present and, and who I am. He couldn't love me. The cross says that he does. And his redemption is motivated by his great love. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Redemption is motivated by love. Secondly, redemption meets our greatest need. Look what it says there in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Everyone say sins. Freed us from our sins by his blood. Our greatest need is to deal with our sin issue. And we all have to deal with it because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all done things God's told us not to do. We've all not done things God has told us to do. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's holy perfection. And because of our sin, we are separated from God. We we are far from God. We have no relationship with God. And if we die in that condition, if we die in our sins, separated from God, we will spend eternity in that awful place called hell eternally separated from God. So our only hope is that someone comes to deal with our sin. So there's no longer separation between us and God so that we can be reconciled to God and have a relationship with Him. And John reminds us that Jesus came to deal with our greatest need. He came to deal with our sin in two ways. First of all, God's offer of redemption means forgiveness from the penalty of sin. Forgiveness from the penalty of sin. When you embrace Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross as he died in your place is applied to your spiritual account and his blood washes away your sin. We sang it earlier. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so when you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, his blood is applied to your account, and you are forgiven of all your sins. Wow! Think about that. Forgiveness! The Bible says he takes your sins and he casts them into a sea of forgetfulness. He holds them to your account no longer. You have been reconciled to him. You can now call him Father. That barrier of impurity between you and God has been washed away by the blood. Redemption means forgiveness from the penalty of sin. But secondly, God's offer of redemption means freedom from the power of sin. 
See, if you don't know Jesus, not only are you separated from God because your sins haven't been forgiven, haven't been washed away, but you are also powerless to do anything about it. Now, a lot of folks don't like to hear that. But I want you to know the Bible says that if you don't know Jesus, you are a slave to your sin. Now, you can try to fix your life a little bit. You have New Year's resolutions, and you can go to Barnes and & Nobles and read the self-help books in the, in the self-help section, and you can try to pick yourselves up by the bootstraps and maybe make your life a little bit better for a few moments, but it never lasts, does it? You know why? Because you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. But when you meet Jesus Christ and he forgives you of all of your sins, the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of you and gives you the power to say no to sin and yes to God. He, he breaks the power of sin over your life. He, listen, he sets you free. Free to have meaning and purpose and live with joy and hope and fulfillment. That's what redemption is. It's forgiveness and it is freedom. It says there in verse 5, to him who loves us has freed us from our sins by his blood. But here's the third thing about redemption, and I don't want you to miss this. Redemption gives us purpose in life. Rede- Listen, redemption is not just fire insurance from hell. Where you meet Jesus and say, thanks Jesus, thanks for the, for the salvation, I'll, I'll see you later, I'm going to do my own thing now. No, when you get saved, when you meet Jesus, you are given a new purpose in life. Look what he says. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us. If you're a Christian, God has made you something. He's made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. That means you have the privilege now of standing between God and a lost and dying world as a priest and declaring the goodness of the God who saved you and declaring the good news that those folks who are lost and far from God can be saved too. You have the privilege now of declaring the good news so that those who are far from God can be reconciled to God just like you were. That is now your preeminent purpose in life. That's the reason when you get saved, God doesn't take you directly to heaven. You're still here. And if you're still here, you're here to be a kingdom of priests, to make God's name known to those who don't know him, to those that are far from him. And so, redemption gives us purpose in life. Now, what does this mean for all of us in this room? What is the relevance of Jesus Christ shedding his blood and rising from the grave? Here it is. Be saved. Be saved. There were people all through human history that saw the evil of human slavery. Slavery was a reality in our nation. For decades and decades and decades. Evil. Destroying lives. And and there were people who were kind and gracious and had some financial means. And they would go to slave markets and they they would pay the price for a slave. To take them from their owner and then they would set them free. Can you imagine a slave turning down that deal? 
I'm going to pay the price for you. You'll be free to go and live your life, to pursue your purpose in life. No longer bound. The price will be fully paid. Can you imagine someone saying, no, I think I'll stay with my slavery. Can you imagine someone saying that? Well, that's exactly what you're saying to Jesus when you reject his salvation. The Bible says the price has been paid at Calvary. You can be forgiven. You can be set free from your sin. You can have real meaning and purpose in life. And to reject that is to say, no, I want to stay in my slavery. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm happy just the way I am. That's what it means to reject the redemption that Christ offers. There's a third thing here very quickly. Jesus Christ was raised to reign. He was raised to redeem. He was raised to receive worship. Look what it says in verse 6. It says, He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John gets it, doesn't he? He understands that if Jesus Christ died for our sins as the God-man, and Jesus Christ defeated death itself, and Jesus Christ was ruler of the kings of the earth, and Jesus Christ was saving people that believed in him, he understood that Jesus Christ deserves all of the glory. John understood that it was all about Jesus. And he gets caught up talking about him and begins to just worship to him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ was raised to receive worship. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 indicates that there will be representatives from every tribe worshiping around his throne. There are going to be people from every tribe on the face of the earth, every language, every tongue, every nation that will get it. They'll understand that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. They'll embrace him as Lord and Savior, and they will commence a life of glorifying his great name. And the Bible says when we get to heaven and we're around the throne of the Lamb of God, there will be people there from every people group on the face of the earth worshiping King Jesus. Won't that be awesome? To hear his name worshipped in different languages that I think we'll understand in heaven. To see the Lamb lifted high by representatives from every people group on the face of this earth. So wait, what's the the application? How should I respond to the reality that Jesus Christ is to get all the worship? He's to get all the glory. Be awed. He was raised to receive worship. Stand in awe of him. Give him the glory he so richly deserves. Understand, listen, understand that, that it's not about you. It's about him. He saved you. He's the one that deserves the glory. I read a story this past week about a high school in Pennsylvania. And they brought in Miss America as a guest speaker. So Miss America comes in and she's sharing things about her life and her background and and her platform. And some student, high school student, I think he was a junior raised his hand in the middle of her talk, and he stood up and he asked her to prom. And then this guy walks into the front, gives her a plastic flower, 
takes out his cell phone and wants to take a selfie with Miss America. You know what he got for his efforts? He didn't get a prom date. He got three days of in-school suspension. Somewhere, that young man missed the point. The, the, the program was about Miss America. What about him? But he tried to make it all about him. And that's how a lot of us live our lives. We try to make life all about us, and we forget that it's all about him. He's the one that is to receive all of the glory. Amen? Be odd. Here's a fourth thing, and we'll be through. Jesus Christ was raised to reign, raised to redeem, raised to receive worship. But fourth, he was raised to return. Look what the Bible says in verse 7. Behold, John writes, he is coming with the clouds Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Here in this passage, John quotes the minor prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, when he says that those who pierced him will see him and wail on account of him. Just like, listen, there will be representatives from every tribe worshiping around his throne, There will also be people from every tribe wailing when it's all said and done. It says there, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, all the people groups of the earth, will wail on account of him. The word wail means deep mourning. It was used in the first century to mean, to to, to indicate beating your breast as an expression of sorrow, as an act of mourning. Kendall Easley writes, those who have rejected Christ in every age, listen, beginning with those who pierced him, have thought they were superior to him. At last, they will realize their terrible error. He will become their judge. As the doom of all the unbelievers sinks in, they will mourn because of him. They will realize all is lost and that he is about to inflict judgment on them. You see, on Judgment Day, there'll be two groups of people from every tribe. There will be those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, those who have experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, and on that day, they will be worshiping Him. There will be others that have rejected Christ and rejected the gospel, and on that day, they will be wailing Sorrow, mourning, because they will realize they missed it. So here's the question. On that day, when we stand before the judge, will you be worshiping? Or will you be wailing? I read a fable about three demon apprentices. They were being trained by the devil to wreak havoc on the earth. And it came time for their final exam. And Satan asked these three demon apprentices, what's your plan to bring about destruction? What's your plan to ruin lives? And the first demon apprentice said, well, I will tell them there is no God. And Satan said, you might lead a few astray like that, but, but, 
but most people on the earth believe there is a God. I don't think that's going to be a very successful strategy. He just spoke to the second demon apprentice and said, What's your plan to destroy lives? And the demon said, I will tell them that there is no hell. And Satan said, You may get a few like that, but by and large, that's not going to be an effective strategy to keep people away from Jesus. And he looked at the third demon in training. And he said, what's your plan? And this demon said, I will tell them that there is no hurry. And Satan said, go. You will lead thousands upon thousands astray with that strategy. Can I tell you this? Our appointment with death is rapidly approaching. I don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die, but I know this. We are all one day closer to our appointment with death than we were yesterday. And the question is, are you ready to step into eternity? The Bible says it is appointed for man to die once after this comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And when you stand before the judge... Will you be worshiping because you've received the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the glorious salvation that only comes from Him, or will you be wailing because you put it off, because you were in no hurry? Jesus Christ was raised to reign, be surrendered. Jesus Christ was raised to redeem, be saved. He was raised to receive worship, be awed. And he was raised to return, be ready.